Daniel today. Great job, folks. Uh, good to see all of you. Welcome again on this Sunday morning. I am going to read the passage today. It's from Romans 15, 5 and 6. Paul says this, Now, may the God who gives you endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for this scandal of grace. God, we thank you for being willing to send your son to redeem us. And thank you for the word today as we seek to live in unity with one another. Would you challenge us with the word today? Anoint Pastor Patrick as he preaches and uh, brings the message today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, church. Oh, the sun just came out as I got up here. Oh, sorry for those of you not. I apologize. Murphy's Law says that. Hey, uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Last week I wasn't here because uh, I was preaching at a, a church in Ryrie for a good friend, James, uh, James Peterson. His parents go here, but he's a good friend and fellow uh, minister of the faith. And so I stepped in for him as he's also the director of OFCR. And when I was there, I got to preach to pews again. It was awesome. So I, the last eight years before coming here, I only preached to pews. And here's, here's why pews are really helpful. Now, they might be not helpful for you because they're not comfortable, but that's what helps a preacher. Because if you start hearing a lot of squeaking in those seats, you know it's time to wrap up. People are done. This isn't hitting home. It's time to go home. It's a little bit. Now, the hardest place I ever had to preach was at a buddy's church. It was a church plant, and he met in a movie theater with those reclining seats. I kid you not, people were falling asleep, and I thought I was bringing my A game, but it did not look like it. They were just taking a nap. They woke up. You done yet? No? Okay, I'll just take a little siesta. That was the hardest place to preach. Well, I'm glad to be back here uh, and preaching to you what a wonderful day it is to be outside and to glorify the Lord. One of the things I want to bring to you, and this might sound a little afflicting, but leaders are a dime a dozen in God's kingdom. Leaders are a dime a dozen in God's kingdom because every leader is a tool in the hands of God to create something awesome, but he can use anybody. He is the power behind which the church grows and the gospel goes forth. And so a leader's failures, a leader's har can harm the gospel. It could impede someone from hearing it and understanding it clearly, but it cannot stop the gospel's advance. We, we are studying the book of Acts in which the gospel is relentlessly going forward in a world that is opposed to it, that wants nothing to do with it, that has never heard of such a thing as grace. And so the gospel is going forth and it's advancing in this Greco-Roman world, but it's, so far it's been opposed religiously back in Jerusalem. It's been opposed politically. It's been opposed socially and culturally and racially Theologically, we just finished that last week as the Judaizers are trying to return the church back to being Jewish first and, and then you can have Jesus. This morning though, there's a different kind of opposition. It's one we don't quite think of in the book of Acts and yet we know it has to take place. There's relational opposition. There's the breaking of friendships and fellowship with people that were really tight with one another once before, who really understood each other and worked together. So this morning, we look at the relational opposition that comes against the gospel that, brothers and sisters, is a part of our church. There's no way it's not. If Jeff was true two weeks ago, if we're a mega church in eastern Idaho, we have problems. We have flaws and we have blind spots. But that won't stop the gospel's relentless advance in eastern Idaho, nor will it stop it in this church. Because God is the power behind which the gospel goes forward. And so today we look at God's word to grasp the importance first of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled with each other? 
when there is a disagreement, when there's frustration or angst, but also why is it so important to recruit, train, and deploy good Christian leaders? Because they're at the key. They're going to set the pace. They're going to be the ones that will help facilitate this reconciliation when problems arise. So we're going to look at reconciliation and the importance of Christian leadership and how God uses flawed yet faithful men and women to carry on his mission to save the lost. Will you pray with me one more time before we jump into scripture? Our Lord and our God, we admit that we are flawed, we are faulty, but, and we are still sinful, yet you choose to use us. Help us to be amazed at what you have accomplished so far in this church and in your kingdom here on earth since Christ. Uh, may your spirit be the teacher this morning, bringing the words that will either affect our heart, move us to reconcile, or, or move us to accept a position of leadership in your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. If you have a Bible, open up your phone. And this is the end of an important passage. It, it, to me, after reading the beginning part of Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, you follow this up and you scratch your head a bit as to, well, this doesn't seem as important. And yet I find great encouragement knowing that Luke decided to include this account. First thing we find out in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 39, I'm going to read this in a second, but leaders are flawed, but the gospel is not. Leaders are flawed, but the gospel is not. Look with me in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we had preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go give them a checkup. Let's, let's see how things are happening. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them into the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, the two parted ways. And that sharp disagreement, it, it gives the contextual understanding of an unmovable force meeting an unstoppable object. This is the situation we find ourselves in on two pillars of the gospel. And so we're coming out of an essential passage just before this. The previous sections in Acts chapter uh, uh, 15, where the Jerusalem council has given the, their decision to Paul and Barnabas to go back through Antioch and the surrounding churches, this simple message that the Gentiles are full members of God's church and family without the need for circumcision or becoming Jewish. And to that we say yes and amen. This is phenomenal mission that they've been tasked with. But Paul and Barnabas come to a disagreement over a person. They agree on the message, but the people carrying that message and attending the group who they're going along with, they do not agree. And we need to understand a little bit of why was John Mark so important to this decision. John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. He had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey until he had deserted them earlier in Acts. So we can read that says, and John Mark left. That's all we're told. He, he left for some reason. We don't know why. And we can't understand why he left. But Luke records it as, negatively as abandonment. It wasn't a good reason he left. It, it was seemingly in the dead of night. He just got up, packed up his things, and they woke up in the morning. Where's John Mark? What happened? So for Paul, this is a deal breaker. I, I'm not going to accept him in. You burnt this bridge. You're not crossing it again. I'm not building a new one. Now, what we need to understand about these missionary journeys, the easy part of these missionary journeys in the Roman world was the walking. The hiking was great. That was easy. Anybody could do that. We know Roman roads. They exist to this day. That's the easy part. It's everything associated with that journey. The difficulty of finding a place to stay, to be able to find food, running out of money, leaving home, not knowing when you're coming back, if you're ever going to come back. 
the natural disasters that could follow you. We know Paul was shipwrecked on an island later in, in another journey. So the, it was arduous, it was difficult, it was not something you easily sign up for. And so John Mark had enough. There came a place in John Mark's journey with him where he says, I, I'm gonna return to the way I used to live. I can't continue in this line of work anymore. So we have to understand a little bit of this disagreement. Paul, on the one hand, understands the necessity of the journey, the importance of the journey, and he understands what kind of character, what gumption it takes to go on this journey with him. So he looks at John Mark and says, you couldn't hang the first time, you're not going to hang the second time. We're not going to do this again. Now Barnabas, on the other hand, sees something a little bit different. Because the conflict that he pictures is not in the journey, it's in the person. See, Paul and Barnabas have different sets of what's what I would call what they deem important. Paul really looks at the work as important. The mission, the journey, the message, this is what's most important. Everything needs to rise to that standard. Barnabas, on the other hand, we've seen through the book of Acts, what's his nickname? He is the encourager. He's the one that comes alongside a fellow brother and lifts them up, establishes them. The irony of what Paul is saying no to is the very thing that Barnabas did with him when he entered Jerusalem. Uh, let's give this guy another chance. Let's give him an opportunity. And so as we jump into this, as we leave Jerusalem, John Mark reunites with Paul and Barnabas and wants to go along. Paul says, absolutely not. This is a deal breaker. And they go their separate ways. But I have to ask a question. Why would Luke include this? In this amazing testimony of the church's beginning and advance and establishment, why would we enter into a, enter a story in which the very leaders of this church cannot agree? Why does Luke seem like he needs to do that? Better yet, why does God want this in his word? Why does he want this testimony to be a part of his church life? I think very simply, he needs us to know that conflict is inevitable in the body of Christ. Conflict is inevitable. Every church has it, large or small. And it's because we are fallen, faulty people. And we make up the church. And on top of that, fallen, faulty people lead the church. <laughs> and in Paul and Barnabas's case, the conflict centered around simply, do, is it what's more important, the work or the people? What's more important, the work or the people? Well, you tell me, which one would you pick? Now for me, I, I'm more of the encourager. I lean more towards this side and yet the work still has to get done. Oftentimes, the biggest conflicts in a church arise over two good things. There are two good things that the church can do. One's not bad, one's not good. I mean, excuse me, one's good, one's not bad. They're both good. And this is the conflict that we find ourselves in. Paul didn't want to risk jeopardizing his apostolic call to preach the gospel. They couldn't agree. I've been in churches where there has been conflict in a church meeting over who buys the toilet paper. It gets as silly as that. I'm sure many of you have been a part of churches that have had those kind of silly arguments. And yet at the very same time, I've also been a part of churches where there's disagreements over whether a worship pastor should continue to lead because his wife left him. How, what, what's the time of reconciliation? What, should we let him continue to lead worship? Should we not? These are heartfelt good decisions. In our elder board meetings, we still have tough decisions to make. We have disagreements. There is conflict always at the door. It's inevitable. But what if we don't pay attention to this conflict? What if we just sleep, sweep it under the rug? What happens? Conflict always leads to division. Conflict always leads to division. The result of all conflict and strife is division. A separation of friendship and companionship or partnership. And sadly, two pillars of this church part ways over a mild, what we would consider a mild disagreement. 
It's not theological that they turned to split. It's nothing biblical that we understand that one was right, one was wrong. In fact, Luke doesn't even tell us. Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Well, what would you say? I'm sure in here you're kind of thinking you lean one way or the other, depending on your makeup, maybe your nature. I lean more towards Barnabas. I think Barnabas is right. We're going to look at Paul eventually reconciled, so that's my thing. At the very same time, I can't turn my back on Paul and say he was entirely wrong. Barnabas, excuse me, Mark did abandon them. And so they led to this amazing division. Yet we ask this question, why would God allow this? If unity is a central ethic to the church and the Christian life, if Jesus prayed it in John 15, Father, may they be one as we are one. Paul will even say this in Ephesians chapter four. There is one faith, one baptism, one spirit. So Paul even identifies this yet they still split ways. They can't come to an agreement. Despite their flaws, can God still use them? Despite them disagreeing and breaking fellowship and going different directions, is God still glorified by that? It's an interesting question as we look at a church. One thing we need to say, especially looking at Genesis chapter 50 with Joseph, when he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. That's because God does not plan for our failures, but he does plan around them. God does not plan for our failures and our dysfunction and our relational uh, corruption, if you will, but God can and does plan around them. At the end of that passage, next, next couple of verses, what does it actually say? Paul chose Silas and they went north following the churches, but Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus. Instead of having one team return to the churches, how many teams did God have? He had two. Now, who was right, Paul or Barnabas? Well, that's actually the wrong question to ask. What we should actually acknowledge is that both are wrong. Any division within the church is not acceptable. It's not what the Lord had intended, yet he will plan around it for his good and for his glory. So instead of one team to strengthen the churches, God has two. But is that the status quo we should be okay with? The answer is no. So if conflict is inevitable, conflict will eventually lead to division if it's left unchecked, unnoticed, or uncared for. But one thing God makes very clear, reconciliation is non-negotiable. Reconciliation amongst the people of God is not an option. It is the path we all ought to take. And it's where the Lord wants us to continue to move towards. Why is that? Because we believe in a God of reconciliation. He reconciles us to himself through faith in Jesus. We are able to be as he is. See, when I got into this town a couple months ago after being here at church, I was working out front building something and I'd been here maybe two or three months and an individual from the church came up and said, hey, can I meet with Pastor Patrick? Well, he didn't know I was here, I guess too new, he didn't know me. And so went in my office and talked. And what he began to describe is an individual who started coming to their small group that on the exterior was rough. It was not something that you would snuggle up with and say, yeah, this guy, this guy is into Bible studies. And yet he kind of shared with me everything that he thought wrong with this guy attending. And I said, I, you need to work through your small group leader first. I don't know the situation. This is not how it works. Work through your small group leader and find out if this individual is right to be a part of the group. Well, as time progressed, this happened again and again. The individuals, the family would come and they would tell me different things in which they would find wrong with anybody that they would come across or be in connection with. It was only a matter of time that that was pointed towards the church. 
They're no longer here. Well, after describing this and trying to reconcile and and build bridges, what they confess to their small group leader is they are self-proclaimed bridge burners. They break fellowship and they have no desire to restore it. That's not the heart of our God. When I heard that, I I was aghast. How, How can that be in the church? Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in the same mindset that, forget it, what's done is done. I'm not even gonna try. That is not of God. God is the God of reconciliation. He did it with us. He can do it amongst each other. If he can do it between us and him and forgive a litany of sins, brothers and sisters, through the power of the spirit, you and I can reconcile with each other. There is no boundary. There is no difficulty that we can't break through with with God's power. And so although that's sad and they're no longer here, they left. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for me to even consider someone who isn't willing to ask and say, how can we rectify this problem? Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus says very clearly, so if, you're, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. What is, God, what is Jesus saying about God and the way he prioritizes what brings him glory? The reconciliation amongst his people is a greater gift than you and I could ever sing in worship, offer in financially, or give out of service. God is more glorified by our relationship being restored to each other than he is by singing a song. There are priorities that we should have as believers. But know this, it, Paul will double down on this in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that he tells the Corinthian church full of problems and he says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We continue this ministry of reconciliation. What he has done with us, we put on display through this world in our relationships to each other. This is why it's a priority. God will, the world will know about how God wants to operate in their life in relationship to him through what they see in us. So as Christians, the air we breathe is reconciliation first with God and then with each other. It's difficult. Make no doubt, reconciliation with each other is not easy, but there is great joy at the end of it. Inexpressible joy, which I'll share an example in a second. So does the Apostle Paul leave the relationship with Barnabas, the status quo of how we leave it here in Acts chapter 15? Is is this it? Have we gone our separate ways? No, not at all. Paul's heart softens to John Mark so significantly that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, this is what he writes to Timothy saying, only Luke is with me, bring Mark with you for he is useful in the ministry. He is supporting me. I, I can't continue this without John Mark. Man, that's a stark difference than what we just read in Acts chapter 15. This guy can't hang. He doesn't cut it. Paul's heart softened. There was a reconciliation at a point where now Paul looks at John Mark and says, he is indispensable. I need him. Bring him with me. It's a far cry from the sharp disagreement of our passage. So isn't God amazing that he doesn't plan for our failures, but he does plan around them. But because the spirit is at work in Paul and John Mark and in Barnabas, they reconcile. They restore their relationship and fellowship. And God is glorified in this. And so, yes, God entrusts flawed and faithful people with his message of reconciliation because we are the perfect candidates to display that reconciliation. We reveal what God wants to do in this world when we reconcile with each other. Before being called here uh, to Christ Community Church, I have had two major experiences at my last church where there was a breaking of fellowship. 
or the bridges were burned. They were, they were charred and it took a while to rebuild them. After being a youth pastor about six years, I had been told for two years, hey, we want to make you an associate. We want to make you an associate. And the goalposts kept moving and moving and moving, one thing after the next. The senior pastor was totally in for it, but come to find out there was a handful of elders that truly did not care for me at all. They're, they're, and it got to the extent where I found out later the main reason why I was not being considered to be an associate pastor at the time, despite graduating seminary, despite doing everything that they asked me to do, was because one or two elders were concerned about my life outside of the ministry. They thought I was an absent husband and father, addicted to pornography, and was angry and almost abusive. And do you want to know how that came about in their minds? Because three years before that, that elder's son was on youth staff with me. And he asked me one night, how are you doing? And thinking to myself that this was a trustworthy individual, I said, Kelsey and I are in a really rough patch right now. We're having really difficulty times, difficult time communicating. And I'm really wrestling with lust. That's the only thing I ever said to him. That was it. Come to find out he told his dad that. And it had grown into, I was an abusive husband, addicted to pornography, unfit to be in ministry. So once that was shared to the elder board, the senior pastor said, are, are you 100% sure? Have you confronted him on that? Have you talked to him directly? Well, no. So I get this phone call from this former youth pastor. He, he moves in Wyoming now. He hadn't been there for three and a half years. And he called me up and I thought he was just checking on me. Hey man, you said this to me three and a half years ago and I, I loved it. I thought, man, this is the way it works. This, the, the spirit moved, he called and we talked for a bit. No, he was covering his tail. He was backtracking. And so me and this elder, I at that moment wanted nothing to do with him. Zero. Can you imagine? Would you want anything to do with that individual who's willing to just go out on a limb, accuse you in front of the board, undermine your advancement for this amount of time? But what I know to be true is that in many ways, he is someone whom I wanted to be. And so what we did is we sat down, we went to lunch, and we worked it out. I never heard an apology. I never heard a sorry. I do know what Jesus means in, in, the, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, don't throw your pearls before swine. I've learned that lesson real well. Not that he's a swine, but just you get to understand. They, people have to be, you have to know who's able to care for what's important to you. But as a result, there was healing. To this day, if I were to see that elder, I would shake his hand, give him a hug. I'd have another meal with him. It is possible. It hurts, but there is great joy as a result. A couple, back in October, I went back to officiate a wedding back at that church, and I saw him, and he was the first person I saw. And that was not the first thing I thought of. The first thing I thought of was, how are you? Same thing is true of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Instead of thinking, man, how dare you abandon me five years ago? He probably thought he is indispensable in the ministry. I'm serving along. He's a brother in Christ. And so we reconciled before leaving. And there's another story of the elders excluding me. I've had, I've had fun experiences with elders. And to, to my elders here, you are a blessing and a joy. Please know that. But here's one thing's true that I know about these elders and the elders at that previous church that both of us had the same spirit working on our heart for us to reconcile. The right leaders were in place. I don't expect all leadership or all elders, or you should not expect me or Jeff or Ryan, Daniel, any of us to be perfect. You should expect that we're flawed. You should expect that we're faulty, but you should expect us to seek repentance. You should expect us to understand the weight of this calling 
and the necessity it is to be good Christian leaders, faithful Christian leaders. And so right after hearing of this disagreement over John Mark, the very next passage we read is Paul selecting Timothy to join his team. So we have to, have to ask the question, why does he say no to John Mark and then yes to Timothy and unknown? Why does he do this? Because in Paul's metric, he understands the importance and the high calling of Christian ministry. If you were with me in Acts chapter 16, verses one and two, we need to identify and deploy qualified leaders who understand this calling. Paul went out to Derby and to Lystra, where there was this disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of this man. Paul sets out on his journey with Silas and he finds Timothy. Timothy catches his eye. The testimony of the surrounding towns tell him that mm, this is a trustworthy individual. This is someone I see that I can reproduce myself in him. I can establish him in the ministry and we have books written to him. And so Paul sees this individual and asks him, invites him to be a part of his team. But notice Luke's inclusion of Timothy's parents. His mother was a Jew and his father a Greek. Socially and culturally, Timothy is not Jewish. He has some Jewish blood in him, but because he had not been circumcised, because he had not been practicing, to the Jews, close on Paul's heels, this would be a beachhead to sow seeds of division and undermine this gospel message that's going out. And so Luke includes this paradigm in which his mother's Jewish, his father's Greek, and they've done nothing about his Jewish lineage. And so Paul understands the importance of this gospel message. And so he has to ask Timothy to do something. And he asks him to do it first and foremost because Christian leadership is a high calling. Christian leadership is a high calling. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 7, I'd love, you to, love for you to highlight this in your Bible, underline it, write a little note down. It's important for us to know the importance and the high calling of Christian leadership. And the writer of Hebrews says this, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word over you. Remember your leaders, think of them. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Carefully observe their life. If it's proved worthy, imitate their faith. Leaders are the tangible example of godliness in the church, or at least we're supposed to be. God knows a leader's flaws. So first he instructs the church and the body of believers to first examine that leader. And if they're proved worthy, imitate their faith. One of the wisest things my grandpa has ever said to me, and he said it in passing, I don't know if he was trying to teach me, but he said, I only trust the word of old dead guys because they can't compromise their faith any longer. They have finished the race. They have ran it well. I trust what they say. Now, that's not saying I don't have mentors and people I look up to and trust to this day. It's a sentiment to say, I, I don't really trust the heart of man until it's done. And so leadership has a high calling. So I follow and listen to men like John G. Patton, George Whitfield, J uh, Mark Dever, John Bunyan, Martin Luther. And Paul will eventually tell Timothy in his first letter the qualifications for elders, for pastors, for teachers, for deacons. Why? Because this is the bar that they must reach. This isn't the finish line. This is the bar that they must be above. This is the bare minimum. To be a teacher, to be a husband of one wife, to be diligent in their calling. And so answering the call of a church leadership reveals great responsibility that needs fulfilling because it's a high calling to take on this responsibility. And so Christian leadership has a great responsibility Look with me in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. He selects Timothy, but then uh, it gets a little dicey for him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, 
So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places since they all knew that his father was a Greek. If you're looking on the surface right here, we, I've already kind of described you and given you a, a little bit of a beachhead to understand like, yeah, this is a high calling. He needs to do this. But this actually seems a little bit like a step backward given what just happened earlier in Acts chapter 15. Paul's mission is to take the decision of the Jerusalem council who just affirmed that Gentiles don't need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to go through the ritual purity laws in order to accept Jesus and be fully within his family. In fact, Paul will write in Galatians 5.3 and verse 6, he pins this. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so how do we reconcile the contention between Paul's words of saying circumcision matters little with his actions of, hey, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. We need to understand what it means to be a disciple in this understanding. When Paul invites Timothy to join him on his journey, he invites him to be discipled by him. And the goal of the, dis- the disciple is to become in every way like his master. And that includes his master's ministry, his work, his mission. So Paul requires Timothy's circumcision, not for his salvation, far from it. Paul would detest that, but to carry on Paul's work. See, he's opening opportunities for Timothy to share the gospel in arenas and areas he could not otherwise if he were not circumcised. See, Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles, but he first begins in the synagogues. Paul would be dressed as as a Pharisee, as a rabbi. And so as he comes into town, the synagogue, the Jewish leaders would see him and invite him to speak. But Timothy, having not been circumcised, and with those Judaizers on his heel, would raise a concern and he would be excluded from being able to share the gospel. So all Paul's doing and requiring to be circumcised is opening a door for, for Timothy to be able to share the gospel in ways he could not. There's great responsibility in being a church leader. There are sacrifices we have to go through in, in accepting the responsibility of church leadership. There are things I have to say no to. I, I can't go away on weekends. Sunday is always coming. There are no quick camping trips that I get to go on or my family gets to go. Now, I can still do those things. I still have done those things. But there is a difficulty in knowing Sunday's coming. Or the challenge of mentally being able to play ping pong or tennis, if you will, on one day you're celebrating with someone who just advanced, has celebrated or seen great victory, only to be followed up with an hour phone call later of someone in the hospital dying. How, how do you, Your brain gets a little crazy jumping between that. And yet the power of the gospel is able to work through those things. There are sacrifices that need to be taken in order to fulfill the responsibility. And so what does Paul simply do? I want to remove barriers from the cross. Timothy, I want you to be sacrificed because I don't want there to be any other barrier in the life of an individual who hears the gospel other than the cross. On Sundays, we as, as church leadership are burdened with a desire for the cross to be the only thing a person wrestles with or stumbles over. We want the message of Christ and him crucified to be the only stumbling block on a Sunday. That means if we can remove barriers or inhibitors to that message, we're going to do it. If there are sacred cows in churches, we have to work to undo those. If they're not leading people to the gospel. It's there and that burden is there because God has placed it in a leader's heart to know their calling is not complete until the Lord calls them home. 
Ephesians 4 verse 11 and 12 says, And he himself gave to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. These church leaders are to build up this body. And that is a burden and a calling that has a great responsibility associated with it. But know full well that if you do accept church leadership, Christian leadership, it does come with stricter judgment. James chapter three, verse one says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive stricter judgment. Anyone who teaches is under a magnifying glass. I myself this morning will be held accountable for every word I've said before the Lord. And so one thing that was taught to me and one thing I pass on to anybody who's interested in becoming a Christian leader, I, I would say, if you can do anything else first, do that. And it's kind of joking. It was said to me as a joke. And then he repeated it. My, my mentor, my junior high pastor, when I was at camp with him, he says, actually, no, I'm telling you the truth. If you can do anything else first, do that. The responsibility and the burden is not light. It does not go away. Charles Spurgeon will say in his letters to my students, as he's instructing the future church leaders, what he said to them, he says, police officers go off duty. Soldiers return home, re- return home from war, but minister's job is never done. It doesn't turn off. People can show up at your door, call you whenever, and you must respond. And so if you can do anything else, please do it. And so I was. I was a math major in college, even though I was a director at a junior high um, in my, my home church, what I grew up at. I was a math major for three and a half years, excuse me, three semesters. That's not three and a half years. That's a year and a half. My bad. It felt, let me, let me explain to you why I said three and a half years. And as a math major, I think it's kind of fun, but then I would spend six or seven hours studying for a uh, differential equations test in the math lab, which my wife affectionately nicknamed the meth lab because we'd sit in there all the time. And I would still fail. I would study the most out of everybody, and it just wasn't the case. And so I found great joy in being a junior high director, loving and caring for and encouraging students that I just, I switched. But I, first I tried something else. That wisdom is stuck with me because Hebrews chapter 13. So we read this beginning, says, observe your leaders. And when they prove worthy, imitate their faith. Well, this is what he says to leaders. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, he's telling the church, obey your leaders and submit to them. Since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. They, we watch over your souls, but we are ones who have to give an account. Who am I having to give an account to? God the Father. In some way, shape, or form, brothers and sisters, Ryan, Daniel, Jeff, and I, and the rest of the elders are going to give an account for the way you're acting, thinking, believing, understanding. That is not a light burden, but it's one we hold with great joy. But that joy at different times it needs to be something that we have to measure and understand. Do I need, do I continue in this? Kelsey asked me the other day, if you weren't pastor, what would you do? I, I don't really have a good answer. I said, maybe I'd make tables and be a woodworker. I, I don't know. At this point, I don't know what else I could do. I don't know. And I refine that to say, I don't know what else I would find my joy in. So we asked this question. Why would anybody saying yes to a church leader? If this is the response that we're told that we have to fulfill and undergo. Why would Timothy, why would Paul, Barnabas, Peter, John, the leaders throughout church history, all of whom know this calling, this strict judgment, why would they still say yes? Why would Paul still want to go on a second missionary journey despite the, the fracture of relationship with Barnabas? Why? Because there's no greater joy than seeing God work and save a soul. 
There's no greater joy than seeing someone accept Christ and to put away their wicked, unrighteous, self-satisfying life because God advances his gospel. And to those in Christian leadership, we are on the forefront and the precipice of always being able to see that. Acts chapter 16, verses four and five, the end of this says, as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Why does Paul go on a three missionary journeys and lead to his death? Because he loves seeing the gospel advance. Brothers and sisters, that's what we get to do here in this church in Eastern Idaho. Do you have a fond joy of seeing the gospel go forward and people say yes to it? Yes and amen. See their life transformed and changed. See, despite my flaws and the flaws of the leaders I serve with and have served with, nothing compares to seeing God's glory on display when a sinner believes in Jesus. Nothing quite matches the joy of a believer's growth and the grace and knowledge of Jesus and seeing the light bulb come on. Nothing compares to the glory being revealed at the gospel's advance. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 3, God gives the growth. You may follow Paul or Apollos. You may say it's all these different things, but God gives the growth. And brothers and sisters, a leader who understands this calling knows that intimately and knows it well. So despite Paul and Barnabas breaking fellowship over a specific individual for a period of time, guess what happened to the church? It still grew. And so brothers and sisters, as you go home today, the first thing you need to know, you need to mend your broken relationships. If there is especially someone of the household of faith that you have broken fellowship with over, you don't have to return to being best friends. I'm not best friends with everyone I have reconciled with, but I have experienced great joy in reconciliation. It's a difficult journey. If you need someone to mediate and to moderate the conversation, pastors, elders, we're available to do so. It's not easy to do, but it is worth doing for God to be glorified. And so think about it right now. There are someone in your life, some of you here, who need to pursue steps of reconciliation. It's worth doing for God's glory because he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. But last, brothers and sisters, we always want to recruit, train, and deploy faithful leaders. We don't have enough leaders. I want, we want more to lead groups and classes. And so some of you have been sitting on the precipice, ready to lead, thinking about leading. I'm going to give you a great place to start. August 27th in room 12, I'm leading the essential, leaders essential, essentials training. It's the foundational principles of leadership, especially here at this church. I encourage you to come. If you're interested in church leadership and answering the call of seeing the gospel advance and being a part of that, I would love for you to join us. One thing that will always be true, and Mark Dever has said that he's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He said, God buries the man, but never the message. And so despite our fractures and our flaws, God's gospel will go forth. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for a blessing to be upon this church, for upon Christ Community Church in Idaho Falls. God, help the brothers and sisters along with myself to pursue the tracks of reconciliation with people. May we set ourselves on the tracks and pursue the path depending, dependent upon your power to restore fellowship and relationship. Lord, will you be glorified in us continuing the ministry of reconciliation with those around us, especially of those who believe and are of the household of faith. And for those in this room who have felt the twinge or the tingling of leadership, God, will you accept them into leadership? Will you lead them into training, into conversations that they too may carry on the gospel's message to proclaim in this world and to your people that you are a good father who is establishing your people in righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.